Do you see dead people? Not because you're a Bruce Willis superfan, but because visits with Gma got a little weird after her funeral. Are you often up at 3 a.m. googling the various ways in which bodies decompose? But you swear it's just harmless research. Are you the first of your friend group to go on a murder tour or rent a haunted location for the night? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Identity Podcast. on protein powders that give me a little extra boost. There are mornings when I just can't get up and eat a huge breakfast, so I make a protein shake instead, and the powders I got from Unico Nutrition hit the spot. There are so many delicious flavors. Vanilla ice cream milkshake, ooey gooey frosted cinnamon roll, spoonful of peanut butter with chocolate, Aunt Judy's banana cream pie, molten chocolate lava shake, cookies and cream dream, and candy shop caramel squares. They even have a birthday cake cupcake with rainbow sprinkles. Unico protein powder for women and men is the perfect guilt-free indulgence. Use the low-carb protein shakes for faster recovery after workouts, healthier snacking, or even as a meal replacement. The powder itself is so fine that it blends seamlessly into milkshakes and mixes for baked goods, And Unico has a bunch of recipes on their website for delicious donuts and keto-friendly cinnamon rolls, to name a few. Unico's everyday wellness supplements help replenish essential nutrients and help you live your best life. Trim down and tone up with Unico's best-in-class supplements for weight loss, carefully formulated with five patented all-natural ingredients to help you achieve your healthiest physique. Right now, listeners of the Identity Podcast can save $20 on their purchase at uniconutrition.com. Just head on over to their website and use code IDENTITY at checkout. That's O-D-D-E-N-T-I-T-Y. Say goodbye to chalky, tasteless protein powders and supplements that fall flat, and say hello to Unico Nutrition. It's like a bunch of unicorns are having a rave in your mouth. Seriously. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the Identity Podcast, your weekly foray into the weird, wonky, and sometimes downright spooky. As you know, at the end of each season, I entertain a guest and I do a little interview. In the past, I've interviewed authors and paranormal enthusiasts, but my season six guest is a combination of the two. Michelle Belanger is an occult expert, educator, media personality, and author of over 30 books on the paranormal and occult topics. She's founder and lead clergy of the magical group House Keperu. She is most widely recognized for work as a psychic on A&E's Paranormal State and Osborne Media's Portals to Hell. 
Uh, she's consulted for numerous documentaries, books, and courses. She's lectured on the paranormal and occult topics at colleges and universities across North America. And she was a National Merit Scholar. She's a prolific and versatile creator. She's also contributed to work projects as wide ranging as Marvel AR, HBO's True Blood, CNN Headline News, CSI Knox Arcana, and multiple RPGs. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. Um, I know your schedule is a little hectic. Hey, thank you for having me. And I mean, it's, you know, we're, we're all under quarantine and lockdown. So like there's hectic. And then there's also days where I'm just like, you know, it'd be really nice. What would be great would be able to go to like Panera or Starbucks and sit in there and like, just to like work on something and like sip right. on some tea and nope. <laughs> oh, maybe someday. Yeah, maybe someday again. We'll see. <laughs> so um, I, I've been talking to uh, a lot of my friends about their their Zoom um, personas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, like you said, everybody's transitioning to kind of virtual reality now. So how guilty are you of wearing pajama pants to a Zoom meeting? <laughs> so I'm actually kind of weird in the fact that, like, if I'm up and out of bed, I'm wearing jeans and a T-shirt. Like I, the, the, the most casual I've gotten is I have a pair of these like black goth, like kind of cargo shorts that go Mm. down to my knees, got Mm -hmm. zippers and used to have like all the strappy things on them. And like in the summer, like that was as close to pajamas as I got. Like to me, that's (laughs) informal though. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, my, my faux pas has been, um, I have like a baggy pair of boxer shorts that I just, Mm. and so I had a, an interview I think a week and a half ago, and I wore my baggy boxer shorts, and then I put on a nice shirt with a collar and a tie. Mm. I was like, "Well, they're not going to see my bottom half anyway, so it doesn't matter." Mm-hmm. I was just my really feet are they weren't going to ask me to get up and twirl, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, oh, show us your outfit. No, no, not nope. Good. My feet are naked. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wanted to start our conversation about how you came into the field of um, paranormal investigations. I I know that uh, this is probably a common question that you've asked, Mm. you've answered before, Um, but everybody seems to have their, their own kind of like little, you know, foray into the kind of weird and, and Mm -hmm. I've learned a little bit about some of your paranormal experiences um, via your book, Haunting Experiences, Encounters with the Otherworldly, which came out in 2009. Mm. Uh, A little bit dated now, but I mean, but I mean, it's, it's an exceptional collection. Um, I, I love it. I go back to it frequently. Um, so perhaps just for my listeners who haven't read that particular book, can you talk a little bit about your personal paranormal experiences and maybe touch a bit on how those experiences affected you and then brought you into the field? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, I grew up in a family where uh, psychic experiences weren't weird. You know, half the family is Irish. The other half of the family is uh, Acadian French and Acadian French are, are a peculiar little like ethnic group. Uh, so I, I also was born with a heart defect. So my life expectancy was five. Uh, and, and so like I spent like the first five years of my life in and out of hospitals. There were a number of close calls when I asked my mom, it's like, did, did I like maybe have a near-death experience on the table? Did I ever die in surgery? And she's like, well, which time, honey? And I'm like, which, which surgery? Oh, no, which time that you flatlined do you remember? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I can think of one. <laughs> there were more. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, 
so, I mean, I, I ended up becoming an investigator largely to understand the experiences that, that I was having, to like really get a grip on, on my own stuff. Uh, there are two early ghostly encounters, one of which it took me years to even know was a ghostly encounter. Um, the first one, I, I think I recount in Haunting Experiences because it was at the Hinckley Library. So I was, I was a pretty early reader. Um, and, you know, as a kid who was in and out of the hospital, like I didn't have a lot to occupy myself with. So books and I wasn't super into TV at the time. So it was books. Um, and my mom knew the librarian and it was they had just bought this old house that, you know, it's a small town. And they were turning it into the library and doing some repairs and stuff. And there was uh, an area going up to the stairs that had yellow tape on it. And mom was like, don't go up there. So of course, as soon as her back was turned and she was occupied with her friend, I was just like, doo, 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 doo. up I went. Because, um, you know, what had to be something interesting up there if I wasn't allowed to go up there. Right. Uh, and it was boring. It was just a hallway. There were a couple of doors. One of the doors was partly open. So I poked my head in. And that also was very, very boring because it was mostly an empty room, like, you know, dropped cloth, uh, like some, like a sawhorse, like, like basically some, some construction stuff over in a corner. Um, but standing at the window uh, was this woman. And I stopped for a moment because she had a dress on that I hadn't, I hadn't seen a dress like this. And, you know, I'm, I'm four, four and a half at most. And there's all these tiny little buttons that go all the way down the back on this high collar. She's got these weird poofy sleeves, but then they get really tight on her forearms. And again, all these tiny little buttons with like little loops. And I'm sitting there going, how does she button all the buttons? <laughs> like, whoa. And there's all this big dark hair up, piled up on top of her head. And, um, you know, it doesn't occur to me that she's not a human being, like a living human being. There's nothing that gives me at that point a cue that she's not real. Um, and I, I think that she must have been an intelligent spirit because she actually turned and she looked at me like she acknowledged that I was there. She didn't say anything. Uh, if I'd had the word melancholy, I'd say that she was melancholy. Like she looked sort of wistful and sad and like she was waiting for somebody that she's looking out the window. Um, and I was almost working up the nerve to like say something to her, but then my mom yelled from downstairs. And of course I had that like guilty flush of like, oh shit, I'm somewhere where I'm not supposed to be. <laughs> uh, and, and I kind of duck out the door and I yelled down, I'm, I'm coming, I'll be right there. Uh, and when I turned back, the woman's gone. Well, you know, I'm, I'm four, four and a half. So the logic of my mind at the time was the woman wasn't supposed to be in the room either. And so she found a hiding spot and I couldn't see where she was hiding. And as far as I could tell, there was only one door in and out. And I just went and faced the music with my mom uh, and, and wouldn't have thought too much about it. I mean, obviously it, it left an impression on me. I didn't you know, go down and like, hey mom, who's the weird lady upstairs? I was just like, I wasn't upstairs. Nope, not me. <laughs> But uh, as, as years went on, I started to hear stories from local folks who had had experiences at that library. And as it turns out, uh, it made a couple of like haunted registries because it was woohoo haunted um, mm -hmm. from about the time, like lots of activity from the time that they started to do the, the, the construction. And what I know now is I met Rebecca. Uh, and Rebecca was uh, an old spinster at like, I think 29, which, you know, tells you something about the time period. Uh, but she was like the sister of the, the local school teacher. She had died early. She was known for her needlework, her, her seamstress work. 
Um, and it's it's notable to me that like her dress stood out so like as such a significant thing. And I mean, that dress was super clear. And it makes me think in retrospect that the dress was important to her, that it would have been something that she'd made herself. Mm. Um, and, and so that that was something that she was kind of carrying with her, the importance of that, the significance of it. Um, the other ghost that I encountered before the age of five that, I mean, it took me until my 20s um, after my mom had di been diagnosed with cancer to like even know that this was a ghost. Uh, my mom was a student at Kent State University. So she, she had me out of wedlock. She was 20, um, kind of, you know, among the hippies that were getting shot at by the National Guard back then, like, you know, kind of a, a, a flashpoint in our history. Uh, and a lot of her friends were, were wild and weird hippie types. And, uh, you know, she was still going through college when I was little. And frequently, like, I'd come down with her to, like, visit friends or, you know, she'd go on studying things. And I remember this one friend who would always take me aside and play with me. We'd, like, hang out. Uh, there were, like, shells she played with. And she looked a little bit like, uh, like Crystal Gale. Like, she had, like, this long, dark oh, hair. Sure. Yeah, like, yep. su like, like, super straight, kind of a heart-shaped face. Um, I remember her wearing, like, like, like almost like a, a ribbed knit, like, turtleneck, like, dark colors. And I remember having conversations with her. Never thought anything weird about it at all until we started to... My grandmother had had an argument with me about where my name came from. And I finally wanted to settle the argument and ask my mom. Because according to my grandma, I was supposed to be named after the TV witch, Samantha. <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. Um, Graham claimed that she was the one who named me mom uh, or named me Michelle and my mom, uh, they didn't get along. So that's a whole other thing. Right. So I'm talking to my mom who's in Texas and I'm like, so, hey, you know, where'd, where'd my name come from? And I find out that she'd named me after her friend, Michelle, who died of ovarian cancer while my mom was five months pregnant with me. Right. Okay, so I've got that little nugget. And then at a later point, we're talking about um, her, her friends and things. Uh, this is, I think, a different phone conversation. But I mean, long story short, I give the description of the person who would take me aside and, and hang out with me and, and have these lovely conversations. And my mom got real quiet. And she was like, that, that's Michelle. And I'm like, um, didn't you say she died? Like... <laughs> And, and mom was like, you know, I always wondered why you were going off by yourself and why you were such a good, quiet kid. And I'm like, hey, I was a pretty good, quiet kid. <laughs> I mean, I got into shit all the damn time, but. <laughs> right. So, so I guess, um, you know, two, two pretty. The, the interesting thing about that for, for my abilities was at that age, there was literally no difference in my perception between these people and like living human beings. Like they, they were, you know, full body apparition. I was interacting with people that I could perceive. Now that, that shifted as I got older um, and, and not in a way that I think was suppressed. I think in a way that was adaptive, you know, if you see spirits everywhere you go and you just go up and start talking to them like they're people, that's going to start to stick out a little bit and it's not necessarily functional. So, so as I started to like go to school and whatnot, like I, I was able to start to tell the difference between here's the real people I'm talking to, like the physical people I'm talking to, and here are other people that I can communicate with, but it's not on the same level. Um, and, you know, from having experiences like that and, and lots of other things, like I, as an early reader, immediately I wanted to, 
I read everything I could about ghosts and the paranormal and parapsychology. And, uh, you know, growing up in the, the early and middle 70s, that stuff was really popular. There was a lot of ESP and parapsychology stuff. There was a lot of access to books. Mm -hmm. um, there were like Time Life series. And I had a truly unique opportunity at my public school of all damn things, <laughs> which was in fourth and fifth grade, uh, the gifted kids for like the whole school district. If you were really good at school, you got to take more school on Saturdays which in my world was fantastic. <laughs> we, we got to pick what we would do. So like um, anatomy, uh, wargaming with miniatures, like early computer programming. And I mean like saving stuff on like little cassette tapes, early computer programming. Uh, but one of the teacher's father-in-laws was uh, a member of the, the Society for Psychical Research. And I don't know if he was Irish or Scottish. He had a, a very distinct accent. Uh, but he offered to teach parapsychology and I ate that shit up wow. <laughs> like fourth and fifth grade through my public school I got to learn about clairaudience and clairsentience um, the sinking of the Titanic and how it was really similar to like uh, this fiction p thing that this guy wrote uh, we got to make predictions about the election with Reagan um, <laughs> we did dreaming work and lucid dreaming like it was an opportunity like like I just a perfect situation to have all of this access and someone who was willing to like in an open-minded way, but also in a way that, you know, asked us to think about our experiences and to analyze them. Uh, so, so that's kind of a significant part of my path. That's, it's kind of how I get here. Lots yeah. of experiences and lots of encouragement to think about them. Right. Yeah. That's really cool that you had the encouragement to be able to develop Mm -hmm. what you know to be your gifts now um because I mean when when I was growing up my grandmother was Roman Catholic and my grandfather was mm -hmm. Army. and they're both very strict religions and very mm -hmm. strict religious practices and so telling my grandparents that I, I was essentially raised by them Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, same, same, actually. Like, yeah, I, yeah. I didn't really right. have a relationship with my mom until I was in my, my 20s. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my grandparents essentially raised me. Um, and when my parents got divorced, when I was like around 13, I, I basically went to live with them. Um, and from as early as I can remember, I have always been able to see, I, I like to say that they're from the other side. Mm -hmm. where that other side is where like where the line is <laughs> or yeah. where it is um but it it feels like they're coming from somewhere else um so as a child i had you know all of these experiences with the paranormal and strange phenomena um and my family didn't talk about it we just didn't talk about it it wasn't something that you mentioned because seeing spirits or seeing these things um mm -hmm. as my mother would call them um, it was essentially akin to um, summoning demons or devils. Mm -hmm. Just didn't you didn't go there, you know? From from a religious standpoint, they weren't keen on that. Um, yeah. So I mean, growing up in Ohio, did you have similar experiences with with people or? Oh, oh yeah. The like, family my, was my, you know more accepting, but. So, so my mom was definitely like open-minded hippie artist from Kent. Um, and my Graham got custody of me when I was in kindergarten. 
um, because open-minded hippie artist is a little bit more of a free spirit than raising a kid who's like scheduled to die at five. Like it was, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on there. Um, my also was raised Catholic. My, my grandmother, Irish, Irish Roman Catholic. And the thing is, is my grandmother had already kind of broken with the church. And the thing about the Irish in my family is no matter how Catholic the Irish are, there's a certain level of mysticism that 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 comes mm -hmm. along with that so like i also got to hear about you know second sight and the fair folk and, and things like that and mm -hmm. so I, I grew up with sort of straddling things so so what my grandmother really drilled into me was it was okay to talk about it behind closed doors mm -hmm. but it was not okay to talk about it to everybody else uh, right. it was sort of um you know she didn't come right out and say it was a secret shame but it was definitely not something you talked about um we would have long conversations in our room, um, you know, late into the night, talking about experiences. And there were certainly times where she would deny it in public, um, which, right. you know, left some mis mixed messages, not gonna lie. Um, the town I grew up in, you know, we have a haunted library uh, and we celebrated the return of turkey vultures every year around the Ides of March. <laughs> so it's a weird, weird small town. Right. Um, so even the jocks and like the preps and stuff at school, most everybody had had some kind of experience. So it wasn't, it was that, that wasn't the source of getting picked on. Like, like I was actually like the kid that like, I started reading tarot at 14 and everybody wanted me to read their tarot cards. Like I'd get inv uh, invited over to sleepovers mostly to run seances. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of cool. Very, yeah, but, but, but like a very, very different um, experience than, than, than most people. Right. I think would have had. And at the same time, you know, neighbors definitely find it scary. I mean, where I live still, um, when I first moved in, like they're, until they started seeing me regularly on TV, I was very, very freaky as far as they were concerned and, and kind of threateningly so. Um, right. We still only have, you know, there are a couple of holdouts who belong to like some pretty strict uh, evangelical churches who are just sure that I'm I'm too queer and I dress in too much black and I'm just too sure. everything and clearly yep. I am you know just gonna I don't know hail Satan in my basement. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, Ohio is just a weird state. I mean, Raymond, uh, there's a lot of witches and a lot of uh, paranormal writers and a lot of paranormal locations around here. Sure. Like you kind of can't spit without hitting something spooky, <laughs> for whatever for whatever reason. Which means we have this sort of mixed bag of reactions from people. Right. And on on, on yeah. one hand, you've got plenty of people you can talk to about it. And on the other hand, you also live in the Midwest where there are plenty of people who are like, what's that devil worship shit you're up to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm currently living in Wisconsin, um, but I'm originally from Newfoundland in Canada. Okay. Um, so, I mean, like the Irish influence is very strong there because a lot of mm -hmm. came over um, during the potato famine. So we have a lot of the, the folklore and the spiritualism from Irish culture. Uh, so like you mentioned, you know, the, the fey folk, um, the thin place, um, mm -hmm. the thing people who are able to see kind of beyond that veil and exist mm -hmm on the border of that veil and are able to experience that. Yeah, yeah, those those soft um, places were like kind yeah, of crossing points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't just happen once a year, you know, on, on like November 1st or whatever, October 31st, November 1st. It's all year round. 
Yeah. And there's certain locations, there's certain like exactly. there's certain people. Yeah. yeah. And there's certain people where like their very presence thins right. the, the yeah, like that's that's very much something that I grew up with too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you grew up in kind of similar situations. Um it's always kind of strange when you see somebody on TV and then you, you know, quote unquote, meet them in person and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I, that, that's good. You know, I'm also whatever. Um, that's always kind of neat. So to kind of move on with um, paranormal investigation and, and the field of paranormal investigation, one of my favorite episodes of Paranormal State, mm-hmm. when um Ryan is talking about uh, Professor uh, Al Johansson mm-hmm. and um, EMF fields, uh, electromagnetic mm. fields. Um, and he came to the conclusion that people who were exposed to like high amounts of EMF had paranormal experiences. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you can have hallucinations, you can have nausea, you can have allergies, you can break out in hives, um, all of these kind of strange symptoms that are supposedly just associated with EMF. Um, and have nothing to do with, you know, paranormal experiences. So you're not having paranormal experiences. You're just hallucinating. So, I mean, from, from like, I come from a place where I, I have seen spirits. I have spirits in my house. I know that they're here. Um, I interact with them on a regular basis. And so for, you know, this, this quote unquote research to be like, oh, you're just hallucinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that his research discounts the validity of paranormal experiences and the existence of the paranormal? No, no. What I think is, is it presents a situation <clears throat> that one has to rule out. Mm. So high levels of unshielded EMF do have an impact on how people feel uh, and how they react to their environment. It's actually originally why we would use an EMF meter in the field at all. Right. Not so much to kind of like point it at the ghosts, but mm-hmm. to go, okay, what, you know, what physical things are going on in this environment? And if the experiences are only ever in this one spot and they're, you know, they, they, they hit like the checkbox of this is a human being reacting to high EMF in their environment, then we have to consider the possibility that this is at least part of what's going on. Um, and as an investigator, you have to rule out those things. Um, super low frequencies are, are another thing that human bodies react to um, and will have psychological and emotional reactions to them as well. Uh, And ruling that out helps us then narrow down, like, what is the actual phenomenon? So first of all, just because certain physical stimuli in our environment can trigger the same symptoms of some haunting doesn't necessarily mean mean that every single time somebody experiences that symptom it's always going to be this physical thing. It means that these are reactions that human beings have to a a variety of stimuli, including EMF. Uh, I I liken it to uh, sleep paralysis. You know, there is a a completely physiological reason why many people have um, hag attack, Mara, sleep paralysis, waking Mm -hmm. nightmares, um, night terrors. And I have also investigated situations where very obviously it is not simply a physiological thing. Like the symptoms being experienced, what the person is reporting is very similar. But for me, as an investigator, I have to go, if three people under the same roof are all experiencing sleep paralysis, 
mm. independent of one another, they're not having the same physiological thing. Like, like that's not contagious. Right. Uh, so we have to accept that there are certain paranormal experiences that we only have certain physiological ways of processing, physiological ways that they affect us. Like that's how right. they interface with us. Uh, and, and part of investigation is ruling it out. Like, okay, is it just a physiological thing or is there something else? And then how do we prove it? Right. So then, um, you know, when on paranormal stated, you know, you, you try to cram everything into like a half hour, like 40 minute episode. Um, yeah. Oh God. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, television, I think like it. Yeah. And, and it's usually like three full days of filming. Right. Like, right. So, yeah. so that's, that's kind of what I was going to ask you about. So, um, you know, I've, I've never recorded a TV show or been on a TV show or anything like that. So I know nothing about it. Um, but when you have so many days that you're just kind of in that environment, is it just like, is it go, go, go like the entire time? Or do you spend a lot of time just like sitting, <laughs> like drinking a <laughs> something, you know, like, cause I know it's well, like paranormal activity wall to wall because that's not really how it works. Yeah, that's definitely not how it works. Fine. Well, the joke in any aspect of the entertainment industry is hurry up and wait. <laughs> so, so a lot of it is, um, you know, for me, the experience was a little bit different because I always had to be sequestered. If I was on there as a psychic, oh, right. I was usually just cooling my heels in a hotel room until such time as they actually needed me. Um, but there were a couple of times that I was on as an investigator or a researcher in my capacity as a cult expert. And what I can tell you is, you show up um, and you are sitting around and there's just, there are hours and hours and hours of, uh, you know, arranging stuff, doing research, just sitting there, uh, especially for the, the investigation's dead time, like when something actually would happen. Right. Uh, what gets put in the TV show is like, you know, the, the two minutes where things actually got interesting. What gets <laughs> cut from the TV show are the five hours <laughs> we sat right. going, if that was you, could you knock again? <laughs> hey, we're really, let's explain why we're here and please ignore the camera guy and the sound guy and the other camera guy and those five people who are outside in a right. van kind of hovering. Cause, cause the, the thing is, is like, um, even if you have a skeleton crew, even, even if you have a very small crew, there's a lot of people behind the scenes. Right. Um, there's, they have to have lighting set up in a lot of cases. Uh, you've, uh, certainly like if they're not just like doing kind of the creepy vr like or, or mm. ir stuff where it's like green and weird looking mm. uh there's there's stuff that has been set up even for reality tv show even uh, even for something that is unscripted uh and then you've got two minimum and usually three camera people uh at least one sound person uh and and by this by sound person i mean like this poor guy has like this whole like thing hooked up to them that they carry around and they are sitting there basically like with a portable soundboard like managing every person's mic and they've got oh, all right. of that pouring like, like and so they've got to be nearby um and then there's producers and directors and some person whose job apparently it is in unscripted reality tv is to write the script which is to say uh -huh. that her job or his job is like being a court reporter they right. listen to everybody's mics all at once and basically type up notes for what everybody said. Wow. And and the script comes out of that, which, you know, we're up there just doing our thing. 
and in order to then like see the story that unfolds here's somebody who's just taken notes the whole time right wow um i I found out about that job description because sometimes i use some college words (laughs) 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 and and i think i'd rattled off some latin um and they needed me to go to to explain like what the Um, hell did you just say like like, what was that i was like oh that that means this yeah right so um, you mentioned dead time. So um, the, the dead time sessions, um, well, actually, you know what, before we get to the dead time sessions, these kind of walkthroughs um, that you would have to do blindfolded, I was always impressed by the information that you could glean just from, you know, visiting these locations and having no, you know, kind of prior knowledge of them. So I, I guess I'm curious, like, how do you find out that you have this kind of gift where like mm. you can just go and, you know, just, just all of a sudden you have all this information kind of flowing through you. How does that feel? How does, you mm. know, can you kind of explain it to me? Yeah. Yeah. So when I first started working with Paranormal State, the first season I wasn't on, I was on behind the scenes as a researcher. Right. I've got a library at this point of about 5,000 occult books. So um, I think like Giles from Buffy or Bobby from Supernatural, but with a little bit less alcohol- alcoholism. Uh, so like they're off doing their thing. They run into something they don't understand. And I get a call at three in the morning and they're like, uh, there's a Micmac burial ground over here. There's this, there's that. And Lorraine Warren is sensing this. Any books wow. that can point us in a direction for what this might be. And so I like go hit the books. And anyway, um, they wanted to bring me on um, actually on camera for second season. And initially, I came on only as an occult researcher. And that lasted not even five minutes once the cameras started rolling because Chip Coffee had picked up on the fact that I was psychic. Uh, and oh. he was like, well, why didn't you tell them? And I was like, well, I've, I've written books on psychic development. I've been teaching it for nearly 20 years now. Right. I figured if, no, if they didn't know, like <laughs> they didn't actually want me to do it. Like, you're the psychic. Right. <laughs> well, uh, and, and that one was uh, the episode called A Messenger mm. was up in uh, like Gold Coast, Oregon or something. Uh, Gold Beach, maybe. Uh, and, and anyway, long story short was uh, Chip. We basically did a little psychic wager. Um, he did his walkthrough. They kept me separate from everything. And then I did my walkthrough and we got to compare notes. And we thought, like, if you have two sensitive people here and like, let's see who picks up what. Now, I, I had done investigation prior to that, but I really hadn't thought about, you know, just the process that I would always go through, which is, you know, for me, investigation always had been, I, I wasn't a tech person. My investigations, um, when I got called in to resolve hauntings or assess possible possessions, um, and I'd been doing that long before Paranormal State, were always very, like, what are my feelings of the space? Like, what am I picking up? So I would go and read the place. I would go and read the people. Some of that was me bringing um, my psychology background to bear as well uh, to just understand, like, are these people uh, genuine? Uh, Are they just misinterpreting normal phenomenon? Like, just kind of reading the folks who are experiencing it. And at that point, there wasn't a really solid line between, you know, reading the location like all of the cues and all of the other things from a very real world Sherlock Holmes kind of perspective and the psychic aspect of it but for paranormal state I had to make a clear distinction and that's where the blindfold came in Mm. Uh, and it it turned into kind of a 
I got to test myself every single episode. Like I, I got to like, just throw myself in and see what do I pick up? What can I pick up that I have no, uh, you know, real world, physical world explanation for how I picked, you know, how, how that information came out. Uh, the blindfold became incredibly useful because like I said, I, there is a Sherlock Holmes aspect to my physical perceptions. I, I am a perceptive person um, right. and intuitive in a, a perfectly mundane physical sense as well. Uh, so, so ruling all of that out, removing uh, the ability to walk into a room and just sort of like see the pictures on the wall and you know draw conclusions about like the socioeconomic status and like you know who lives there and what do they like and you know if there's a a poster of the Terminator on the wall or if they're like super into Star Trek uh, and like all the things that that says about people. Mm-hmm. So so cut that out, and then I'm left with a level of perception and information that I still can't fully explain. Like some of it just baffles me. I, I've been teaching energy work and psychic development for years, and my personal theory is that this is stuff that energy is a carrier for information, um, that when we pick up like a person's energy, when we pick up the energy that's lingering on things like in psychometry, like the stuff that's residual energy on locations and objects, that some of us, and I think to some extent all of us, can read the emotions that are imprinted into that and like echoes of experiences that are imprinted into that. And to me, that's how psychic abilities work. And, you know, when I'm working with Jack Osborne on portals to hell and I've been sitting in a van with a blindfold for, you know, 30, 40 minutes um, and he comes to retrieve me and I put my hand on his shoulder and I can describe down to the color scheme what his shirt looks like. I don't know how. Like, like oh. what part of like energy is invested in his, his freaking flannel. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that part, I, I'm, it's, it's still kind of like an ongoing experiment of like, what, where is this really coming from? Right. I know when I was working on Paranormal State, uh, there were a couple of folks on production who like really they wanted to like take the blindfold and and just prove that it wasn't actually like there were little holes or something in it because i got so used to to wearing it that like i duck and avoid like i just knew where things were Mm -hmm. um in a way i still can't complain i can't can't really explain and Mm -hmm. and exploring it having the opportunity to explore it like actually just get flown out to like god knows where with no background information and then just dunked in to go, what do you pick up? Like, at least I can test it. I, I, I can push those limits. So, so right. for me, it's constant and fun explore, exploration. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's literally a, a second sight. Like it's it is. Because you're putting yourself into a blind state yeah. in order to see something beyond. Yeah, and for me, it is incredibly visual, um, down to colors hmm. and textures. Uh, there's if I if I had inherited a little bit more of my mom's visual artistry uh, mm-hmm. I'd be able to draw the faces that I see and in oh, a few sure. cases I've sketched stuff down um, like with with enough but but like if I could just project what what's in my head it's it, it's like a movie um, in many cases it's like just watching a movie so it's it's literally like salt like solid like it looks like you could touch it um, so, so like it's, it's in my head. Uh, and so I don't know if you've ever done like visual, 
so some people when they read, and, and this is true for me, I think some of this is just the way that I process reality. Uh, I'm, I'm a writer as well, and I write fiction, you know, I, I, I write stories. When I get really into telling a story, or if I get into really reading a fiction thing, there's a point in that experience where I'm not conscious anymore of seeing words on a page. The whole experience plays out in my mind um, with very immersive uh, sensory input, like visual and taste and like all of it. Um, so it's not like there's stuff that's physically in the room with me. There's stuff in my inner world that is incredibly vivid uh, that I could, you know, if I, if I could reproduce it and paint it, uh, still that wouldn't capture it. I would have to like, you know, cast people in roles and put them like on film. It would be like uh, a lifetime but, movie. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's how my particular abilities show up. It's almost always visual first and then kind of like it gets, as I focus in on it, it gets deeper. It goes from, from visual to like kind of feel, um, yeah. uh, sense tactile emotion. And sometimes from that to sound, um, scent and taste seem to come last for me. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes when I was watching it, it literally felt like when they would go and do the research at like, say the historical archives, they'd come back and be like, yeah, so this, this, and this. And I'd be thinking to myself, well, that's what Michelle said. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, and it's the, just so, you know, it's it's so crazy, like, that you be it, so spot on. If I wasn't living it, I wouldn't believe it. <laughs> like, I and, and like, I, I hold nothing against anybody who's like, bullshit. Because yeah, right. uh, there's there have been a couple of things where I'm like, there's, if we weren't there, like, right there, and if we didn't know that I came in before they then did the research, like, mm -hmm how how do you credit that like it's right i put the blindfold on it's like i'm wearing vr goggles yeah right <laughs> wow yeah it's it's a level like sometimes it's a little scary like the level of accuracy because when i was younger there was plausible deniability of like oh well maybe you know since it's local and i'm doing stuff for friends like i i heard about this story or or, or something and and honestly that's a little bit more comfortable than trying to figure out like but how <laughs> right like seriously how yeah. um and sometimes it will present itself to me in ways that are very weird working with paranormal state and specifically katrina weidman and i don't know what mm. what it is about katrina but whenever katrina was on a case and this has continued with uh working with her from paranormal lockdown as well as mm. portal to hell yep. i will frequently have dreams leading up to the case before I even know I'm on the case but Katrina's on the case ah. and something gets passed along uh the first time I really noticed it it was a paranormal state case called the anniversary mm. um and it's a really tragic story it was in Kentucky um about a hundred like a hundred years before to the day uh this young young girl like 13, 14, had been raped and murdered by uh, a family member. And he was chased and they like dressed him up as a woman so people wouldn't lynch him. Like there's this whole drama that went along with mm. it. I dreamed that. Like I, I, three days before I got the call that I was even going on an investigation, I had this incredibly vivid dream. And I do a lot of weird stuff in my dreams. So I've, I've kept dream journals my whole life. So, I, so I'd written this down where 
this this person shows up and is just like you need to know this and he like leads me kind of like from station to station through this tragedy to the point where like i'm looking at the guys like really big oversized muddy clumpy shit kicker boots that they're like hiding in the back of a wardrobe and they're hiding some of his clothes in the back of a wardrobe and all of that happened um like like things that, that they you know I'm, I'm doing the reading and like you know as far as production's concerned i'm just pulling shit out of my ass and i apologize <laughs> if i'm not allowed to say no it's words, fine no no that's <laughs> you're fine you're fine i i i, I try to i try to be good but i'm, I'm a bleeper <laughs> <laughs> we don't bleep here so <laughs> um, but but then they there was enough detail with what i came up with that that's what sent them to the archives to start really looking and when oh. katrina showed me the the article i i was just like are you are you shitting me like <laughs> how where she, the thing the thing that was weird about that is they didn't know that like they discovered that stuff because of what I picked up, or at least the team did. I, I can't, I can't always vouch for the production company. Like that was always one of the dodgier things, is sometimes the production company would scout these things out ahead of time, and do a lot more research oh. but hold it back, mm-hmm. and sort of like let the team go and do their thing. But like they sort of knew or expected what people would discover. Right. Um, sometimes that led to a conflict because the production mm-hmm. company had drawn a conclusion and we very naturally came to a very different conclusion and and right. there are a couple of episodes that the production company in the end focused more in a direction that like it happened but it's not what we felt really was the crux of that case mm-hmm. um which also led to why we were in by fifth season kind of like contracts are up see ya yeah, right. Yeah, I always wonder about, you know, reality TV and how much of it is actually reality, you know, because I mean, you can sit down and watch an episode of Cops. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's, you know, quote unquote, live. Um, yeah, you wonder how much of that is like, okay, you know, now, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna chase this guy, and whatever, now you're gonna do this. And it's like, you know it gives you kind of like an icky feeling like you still gotta watch because it's like a train wreck you can't look away um but it's still you know you get mm-hmm. kind of get weird like crappy vibes from it yeah well yeah. different each one having, having worked with a bunch, a bunch of different ones each one has a different approach and like a different level to which they'll kind of script or right. i i always have trouble if they're just like okay what you just said, like, stop and say that again, or stop, say that with this. And I'm like, I'm, right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not being an actor here. And honestly, I'm, I'm really bad at lying on camera if my purpose yeah. is to be genuine. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> I like the ones that either are like, we're totally going to be recreating things. And what we want you to do is to give us commentary. I'm totally okay with that. And I'm totally okay with the ones like Paranormal State that are more documentary style. We're going to mic you and let you go and we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> like right. whatever happens, happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, Paranormal State never came off as like an episode of The Bachelor or Jersey Shore to me. Yeah. Um, but I often wondered how much of it was, you know, quote unquote, orchestrated. It, it's It's funny because for the production company they have to put together what they call a beat sheet like they need to know who needs to be where 
who's going to be mic'd, who's going to be in the next scene. So in, in just organizing who's filming, like they have to think of it in terms of scenes and acts and whatnot. Um, but then also in the case of Paranormal State, leaving open the possibility of, I mean, we're just mic'd and going, like we do not have a script, we're just doing whatever the hell we're doing. Um, and let me tell you, when Ryan is at the helm of something like that, things are always going to like just not go in the direction you thought they were going to go. Like, and and he will just bulldog that and just like there was there was one time where we were supposed to wrap. I don't know how much overtime this man cost that production company, um, but at one point, dead time, like kept doing that thing. If you've ever been on an investigation where like you can kind of feel stuff getting tense and tight, and you can feel that something's uh-huh. just about to happen, mm-hmm. and then it doesn't happen. Um, and we were there till 7.30 in the morning with that like kind of like hovering sense of like some if, if we wrap as soon as we turn our backs, that's when like everything's going to happen. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, and honestly, if I don't like the format, I don't do it. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's fair. You know, I mean, I you want to be taken serious. I mean, even, even on my podcast, I want to make sure that people know mm-hmm. I'm coming to them with the most accurate information that I can possibly have the most well-researched information that I can possibly have. And I want to make sure that I'm not coming off as a bullshit, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to make sure that like, this is me and I'm talking to you and I'm not some, you know, like person who's trying to put words in somebody else's mouth or make something be something it's not. You know, like just just here's the information, and now it's up to you with what you you do with it, and that's yeah. what I that's what I loved about paranormal state and all of the you know the psychic research and everything that went into it. Um, it was very much like, here is this box of information, and now I'm giving it to you, and so now you 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 know go where you want with it, kind of thing. Yeah, to me that's that's our job, you know, on TV as paranormal investigators to go. First of all, to admit that none of us really know anything for 100%. Like, we can develop theories, they can be informed theories, we can have experiences, and they can be informed experiences. But at the end of the day, this is something that we're all still exploring. Right. And and the whole purpose of exploring it is to then share that journey, share that exploration, and encourage other people to ask questions. And maybe to have a perspective that we ourselves didn't have. Right. And if that leads to val- validating the experience, that's cool. And if it leads to debunking it, that's that's cool too, because all of it gives us more information for understanding what we're doing. Right. Well, in that healthy level of skepticism as well, you mm-hmm. know, you you guys didn't go into a situation and be like, oh yeah, you know, the, the how you know the person who owns the house is absolutely saying that this place is haunted. It must be haunted. So I mean, mm-hmm. going to play up the fact that this place is haunted just for the sake of TV. And it was mm-hmm. like that, you know, it was always very much like, well, you know, like, let's talk about it. What are you seeing? What's happening? You know, let's, let's work through it. And I always thought that that was really awesome. I, I think one of the reasons why it worked with Pinnacle State particularly was the focus was more on helping mm-hmm. the families. Yeah. And some, I, that, that help was always helping them understand what was going on, even if that meant what was going on was somebody was having hallucinations um, or right. that, you know, it was just, you know, it, they were misinterpreting what was going on. Um, yeah. in, in almost all cases, there legitimately was something going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but every once in a while we were like, so 
have uh, we we have this lovely psychologist that we work with, and you might want to consider some aspects of this aren't necessarily right. paranormal, or or the more complicated times where there are clearly things where some therapy and and professional help is necessary. Like there's there's an aspect of mental illness going on, and there's also paranormal stuff going on, right. and you can't address one without the other. Hmm. So from there, kind of what was what was one of the most intense experiences you had mm. explaining to people like whether or not their home was haunted or whether or not mm. they were experiencing something? Because, you know, so many people, I mean, I've had paranormal experiences and to me, intrinsically, I know that they happen and I know mm-hmm. they're true and I know that I experience them. And so coming from a place of that certainty you know, I mean, even if people are having hallucinations, you know, they're, they need medication because they're schizophrenic. Um, you know, I mean, that person is still going to hang their hat on the fact like, nope, <laughs> like I see ghosts and, you know, whatever, like my refrigerator also talks to me, but I see ghosts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so how do you kind of finagle that, you know, kind of get, get through that? It must be complicated. It, it is complicated. It, it helped that the whole team was on board with the theory of you work within the worldview, within the religious beliefs of the people that you're helping. So you have to figure out what their language is, what their belief language is, and then find a way to communicate with them within the, the bounds of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a case where we had some, some definite problems doing that. And although I was on that case, I am not on the episode Uh, Because we actually got to learn that there is such a thing as being too psychic and you uh, break privacy laws with some of the stuff that you picked up because it wasn't people who were dead from 100 years ago. It was stuff that was still ongoing. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, So so this particular case involved a suicide, involved what was probably 19 years of sexual abuse. Wow. And it wasn't only the person who'd committed suicide and Mm. um you know to the family the the trauma people were experiencing was and could only be a demonic force and there was absolutely paranormal stuff going on but there was also this other aspect that was so wound up in the paranormal stuff Um, and, and to my opinion had probably helped to attract the negative paranormal stuff but but sitting the family down and having that conversation um the matriarch wanted i mean they were pentecostal and so it was just demons like there was there was no and it was also pretty obvious when we asked about the person i had described um a we found out that that was a real person um Mm. and it was a family member and the instant that that even came up like she threatened to kick us all out like she just was going to shut the whole thing down um which meant that i got removed um and then they just kind of tapped in lorraine warren instead and yeah it it was really complicated the the most heart-rending thing was the sister of the person who'd committed suicide had watched me do the the reading and 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 so she's just just bawling yeah. And she pulls me aside and she's like, you're the only one who knows. You're the only one who knows. <clears throat> and it's not just my sister. It's me. It's my kids. And, and I'm like, honey, you just need to get the fuck out of here. 
like just like I've I've been there like I've been at the point in my life where I put a few things that I own that I could fit into my car that were portable <laughs> and I just got the hell out right and I slept in parks because sometimes you just need to get out right um you yeah. save yourself first and then you sort the rest out later mm-hmm. uh, yeah. so having been there I was like I can put you in contact with people like like but but none of this is going to fix itself right until you get somewhere safe yeah but that one that one really sucked like super sucked because by the nature of tv there's a lot of waivers there's a lot of privacy there is so much stuff that we absolutely could not do we couldn't report anything to authority we we couldn't do shit about it oh wow um really i mean even if you came upon him really oh no like like there was there was another one where there was um really obvious animal neglect and abuse and we could not do anything about it the only thing that that made that a little bit salvageable is i happened to know someone who lived in that town very close to that house and i was like okay so here's what i need you to do about three to four weeks after we're not there anymore i need you to just sort of like drive by this house and make a call (laughs) (laughs) right because i can't abide what's going on with the cats yeah. in this house yeah well i guess i guess it never occurred to me that and this is really strange because mm. I, you're like you're a psychic of course you're gonna you know pick up on other stuff but yeah i guess i never thought about the ramifications of like going in somewhere where somebody is experiencing a, a trauma to them mm-hmm. And for that trauma to actually be something that is existing in the physical world now, like today. Yeah. I never even yeah. considered that. Wow. Yeah, that one left a mark. <laughs> like I ended yeah. up talking to the psychologist for a while with myself where I was just, yeah. because the, the, the futility of it, having that in my head, like like living it, like like watching that play out was, was a lot. Yeah. And I think if I'd been um, a survivor of that kind of, of trauma myself it would have really undone me right yeah wow well hopefully that person got some help and is in a better place now hope so yeah fingers crossed wow yeah um so from here uh i guess we'll get into some of the questions that i have for my listeners um and then um the remaining time we can just talk about all of your wonderful multitudes of written work um and anything else that you would like to shamelessly plug um because you know we're i'm a writer and i so i understand that (laughs) writing is a very solitary path that doesn't often involve much currency nope (laughs) not even when you sell a lot of it like it's right yeah exactly so it's weird (laughs) so um to start off uh tony would like to know does the fact that you're a psychic allow you to be a ghost hunter like does having the ability make you more in tune with ghosts? Well, the way that I approach the work of a psychic in investigations is I can't, if I am working as a psychic, I cannot be in there doing the, the tech aspect of the investigation. I can't, I certainly can't be doing the, the archiving, the research aspect of the investigation. My job is to basically be a psychic bloodhound, uh, to go into the location, 
to to have whatever perceptions I do and kind of like point people toward places where they might be able to focus other aspects of investigation to either confirm or deny what I think might be going on. Um, it's definitely what, what Katrina and Jack Osborne used me for um, on Portals to Hell, which is, you know, I do, I do the you know, psychic thing, but the real goal is where should we set up? When we do the investigation, what do you think is, you know, where, where do you think are the, the most active locations in, in these places? So I think it is possible to be a psychic investigator, but the approach you have to take is different. Um, and there's a number of protections you need to put into place, not just psychic protections, but literally protections for um, the investigation. Uh, the psychic should never be the person who then does the research to confirm or deny what they've picked up. Right. It's way too easy to be biased, even if you are a good unbiased person. Like there's just, and, and also for the sake of other people believing your data, you want multiple eyes on that and you, you want to have restrictions. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of like, you know, writing something for a journal and having it be peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure it's not biased information because then it's essentially garbage. You know, you can just yeah. throw that away. Yeah. Um, we kind of already addressed this question, uh, but Rebecca would like to know, I loved Paranormal State and all of the craziness you experienced on the show. Do you still do paranormal investigations with the crowd from Paranormal State? I still work with Katrina um, and Elfie. Uh, I have contact with Josh Light, but he's pretty much kind of gotten out of stuff. Yeah. Um, had a lot of family stuff going on. Um, right. Let me see. I, I hear from Taddy, Heather Taddy, every once in a mm. while. Uh, but but I'm, I'm most close with Katrina and Elfie. And also, mm. uh, this person was only on a couple of ep episodes, Chris Edwards, who was Ryan's childhood friend uh, mm -hmm. that had been like their original team. Like the, they, they were Mulder and Scully growing up. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that episode where um, Elfie has to kind of take a step back and leave the mm -hmm. location, that just, the end of that episode just broke my heart. Yeah. I don't well, remember what the context of it was. I just remember like the look on her face and yeah. Elfie lost her father and her brother in rapid succession. Just as she was thrust into the public eye on this suddenly like hit TV show with 3.5 million viewers. Um, and, you know, the thing about the team is they, they legit were just a bunch of college students, most of them introverts and, and nerds and weirdos who were not in any way prepared to be in the public eye. Like that was not, you know, they, they, they weren't thespians, they weren't actors. Um, right. So there's, there's actually a lot of pressure that you don't anticipate about being suddenly where everybody's looking at you and, and wondering what's going on with you and just kind of like you're under a microscope and not everybody right. can handle that. Like it's, it's, there's a pretty steep learning curve to figuring out how to handle that in a way that is uh, functional and, and yeah. also still genuine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that um, a lot of that too was, you know, she had to step away for her own mental health. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what's the good of, of having all these gifts if, you know, you're not well enough to use them? Yeah. And, and knowing those lines and those boundaries is another aspect of being um, an, a responsible and informed investigator. Right. Absolutely. Ethan would like to know, are you able to do psychic readings over the phone or via Zoom? Mm. 
I've had um, I, with California psychics <laughs> that seemed really inauthentic. Uh, I sent some sorry. <laughs> so yes. I, I do best in person, like doing stuff. Now it's, it is possible to read things at a distance. Um, but I'm going to say buyer beware on that because <laughs> it's, it is not as widespread a talent as the number of 1-800 psychics who exist would maybe imply. Right. Uh, and this is actually why I don't do readings for hire. Um, I've got a lot of personal, moral, and ethical issues with it. Uh, one being accuracy and, and just the potential for being wrong. Like if you're somebody who's like putting all their eggs in one basket and asking you to like solve their problems, talk to the dead family, like, in, in some uh, the number of people who are like my my loved one was murdered and they haven't recovered their body where is their body so we can have closure and i'm just like uh, don't ask me to do that like so much pressure please don't like i, I mean you don't want to be in sylvia brown shoes <laughs> I, even if i could and and i'm not going to say that i can't but like just the emotional pressure yeah like their expectations and everything like too much um way too much yeah. for me at least way too much for me um, what I'm going to say very politely is there are a lot of people who really think that they're psychic and they may not even be con people. Uh, they may just really, truly believe that they're psychic and they may not have the most objective perception of their talents. Right. And there's really no, you know, bar association to measure or confirm whether or not somebody has had the proper training or whatnot. Pretty much anybody can hang up their little shingle and say free psychic readings or, you know, 1995, I will tell you everything right. that you need to know. Yeah. Or $500. Um, yeah, right. Or a dollar a minute. Right. So <laughs> how do you balance that? Um, you know, assess what you think. Is, is this a fair wage? I, I do think that people should be paid for their time. And on the other hand, there's, there's being paid for your time. And then there's like taking advantage of people. And the other caveat I really want to tell is if you ever have someone doing a psychic reading for you and they start telling you that you are absolutely possessed or you have been cursed or you have a bad spell on you and only they can fix it, those are so many red flags. That is the oldest scam in the book. <laughs> Don't let your fear let you open your pocketbook to people like that because they're just going to take your money and disappear. Yeah, I mean, there are so many people in in the media today that you know say that they're psychic mediums and you know they have the ability to do this and to do that and i mean it's really just like you just kind of got to pick your way through them and figure out if they're actually you know if they're legitimate or if they're and unfortunately it's not that easy to tell if they're in it for the money or just reading you because some people know how to read people and are like yeah, yeah you know yeah i mean for me, red flags are if anybody tells you that only they can do what they're doing, yeah. uh, if anybody presents their perceptions as 100% accurate, always accurate, proven accurate, if you really are doing this, you know there's a margin of error. You know that all of these things we still don't fully understand. It doesn't matter if you are like this ancient lineage and, you know, 15 grandmothers back, everybody's been doing it. Like I've got, right. I've got a great freaking pedigree of, for stuff like that and I'm still figuring out how some of it works and I've been teaching and doing it for 30 plus years now I, I think it's disingenuous to uh, 
the predators are the ones who are going to talk it up and tell you that only they can do it. And that's why they're right. worth the money they're charging. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what do you think about those people who charge for, you know, these these readings and like make people, I mean, it's essentially like playing on human desperation, right? I, like I said, it, it, there's reasons why I don't do it. And it's especially because, you know, mostly people are coming out of a place of grief. Yeah. Um, I, I have really strong, like, like personal guidelines. If you have lost someone in the past six months to a year, mm. no matter how much you want to communicate with them, what you should be focusing on is going through the stages of grief and, and not turning, even if you yourself are psychic, even if you know for a fact you could communicate, go through the physical and the psychological process first. Mm. Not just for yourself, but the person that you've lost has a process they have to go through as well. Right. And, and so there's, there's healing that needs to happen on both sides before that's a comfortable conversation. And that, that doesn't even assume like, you know, predatory people who are going to like take advantage of your soft spot right now, your weakness right now. Right. Um, like I said, I don't have anything against people being paid for their time and their expertise. And there are limits to that. And I think that if we are seeking people's advice and input, we should always do so with an eye toward, does this feel fair? Does this, is, does this person feel like they are presenting themselves genuinely? Do I feel cared for and assisted? Or do I feel like this is just some sort of business transaction and they're just waiting for me to give them my, you know, my credit card information? Right. All right, so the last question is from AJ. Uh, I'm sensitive and I find that being around other people causes me to feel drained or sick, depending on the kind of energy. Do you have mm -hmm. experiences? A little bit. So as someone who's sensitive, a lot of psychic development is more about learning how to shut things out. Um, so there's a technique that you'll hear grounding, centering and shielding uh, or filtering. So what you want to learn how to do is figure out like kind of where is the volume dial for your ability? Like, how do you protect yourself from what you're perceiving? Um, and when I say protection, don't assume that everything's attacking you so much as you can just be so sensitive uh, that um, think of it like you've got a super oversensitive nose and you go to places and you have an allergic reaction or because you know a, a sense of, of, of decay and rot that doesn't bother anybody else is gonna make you nauseous you need to come up with some way of having some PPE, some, some personal protection stuff to, to minimize your exposure to things that are overwhelming to you. Uh, filtering, so, so shielding is the most common thing, like you know, visualize, visualize yourself surrounded by a bubble of white light is what you're gonna hear over and over again. But the concept there is to set boundaries of this stuff shall not pass. Like, I have what I will let in and I have what I don't want to let in. And one of the reasons why I reframe that to filtering is if you are naturally sensitive, I, I know for myself, like a hard shield, like that idea of putting yourself in a fortress or a diving bell, like just surrounded from top to toe and front and back feels you, you suffocate. Like there is a natural like give and take and flow that you should have with your environment. Um, and it's going to feel like you've kind of plugged up your ears and, and covered your eyes if you shield too hard, unless it's a really, truly extreme situation. So rather develop a sense of like a soft boundary. 
um, think of it like like veils or clothing or or a, or a mask where you can breathe through it and you know some stuff is getting through but it's also keeping the worst of it out and that's what you want to do as a sensitive person like you want to prepare yourself when you go out into the world and have a little bit of stuff that will filter out the harsher the the, the things that you know are going to overwhelm you right yeah absolutely that is an excellent answer so before we go, uh, is there anything that you would like to shamelessly self-promote? <laughs> oh, I mean, on one hand, I want to say, yay, the 10th anniversary of the, of the Dictionary of Demons is out, but it was supposed to be out on September 8th, but COVID happened. And so it's <laughs> probably not shipping until next month. Okay. So like it's up. So, so the Dictionary of Demons, um, like it used to be 1500 word or 1500 different individual names of spirits that were identified either as demons, fallen angels, or evil spirits um, in a very specific bit of literature, um, heavy research, um, one of the things that I'm most proud of. And I got to do a 10th anniversary edition. So now it's 1,700 plus names. It's like mm. 512 pages. It's a very, very hefty book. Right. Um, the one that is up for order right now is limited to 3,000 copies. There will only ever be 3,000 copies of this deluxe hardbound fancy edition. The soft cover comes out in May, as does like the, the ebook and whatnot. But if you are the sort like myself, where you kind of pride yourself on the fancy books that you get to put on your bookshelf and you want something that's like this big tome, um, pop on over to Amazon or Llewellyn.com and put an order. Amazon, because they still have like a 15% off sale, Mm -hmm. And it's a $50 book. Like, it's not right. cheap. The soft cover will be less expensive significantly. Uh, and then the other stuff, I, um, more than working as a psychic and doing readings for people, what I have been doing for 30 years now uh, is teaching people how to handle their abilities, like how to understand them, how to protect themselves. And I do a lot of that through my Patreon, patreon.com slash haunted. So, uh, and we've got like very, like tears from like, a dollar a month on up, but that's where you can gain access to uh, to classes, but also to current books and writing. You get to, uh, at some of the level, higher levels, you get to pr pretty much tell me what book I'm writing next in terms of nonfiction. Uh, cool. And like, there's a whole community there. And it's been, honestly, it's been the most sustainable thing for me, especially as a writer. As you know, that doesn't make as much money as you yeah, think. Right. <laughs> like the publishers are making some money. Um, yes. But what you make per book, uh, I mean, I, I'm not one of those like super secret ones, but like my first book deal was for 6%, not of cover price, Oof. but of like what, what they were making. And that wasn't like, like okay, that's predatory. Is, um, right. But 10%, but, but, but like honestly, it's 15% or under in almost all cases. And that's not cover price. <sighs> That's yeah. what the publisher is making. Like, it's not yeah. a lot of money. So generally, uh, when you see a book out there, like this $50 Dictionary of Demons, I don't know, ultimately, for, for that one, it's probably going to be like two bucks, three bucks, maybe <laughs> per book that I get. Um, wow. So Patreon is fantastic because I do a lot of self-publishing, which means that a lot more of the money goes to me, which then goes back to the other work that I'm doing. Mm. Right. Uh, so Dictionary of Demons, Patreon, which is patreon.com slash haunted. And uh, I've got a couple of card decks, uh, a psychic aptitude deck that helps understand and hone your psychic abilities. 
uh, kind of my take on Zenner cards. Mm. And uh, I just launched these contemplation cards, which seemed like just kind of like a thing on a lark, like it's 56 cards and each of them is just a single word. And I was using them for journal work and meditation prompts and whatnot. And then somebody was like, well, can I use them for divination? And I've been playing around with them for div divination. And let me tell you, they're like a clue by four. They are not subtle. <laughs> they, they, they are just like, here's what you got to focus on right now. Um, so, so those are up and everything's up on my webpage. So if you, right. you want to poke around and figure out what I'm doing, michellebelanger.com if you are French or Canadian or michellebelanger.com if you are American. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, half my family says it one way, the other half pronounces it right. <laughs> I mean, all right, well, thank you so much for uh, taking this time to speak with me today. Um, it's been so enlightening and so amazing. I, I know that they say that you should never meet your heroes because you're destined to be disappointed, but this was amazing and I'm so excited that, that I had this time with you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you. No, it was a lovely conversation. I hope everybody <laughs> had a good time. The Identity Podcast is brought to you on a weekly basis by host Janine Mercer. The podcast is written, produced, and edited by Janine Mercer, unless otherwise stated, and the music is provided by GarageBand. Find The Odd Pod on Twitter and Instagram at IdentityPod and Facebook as The Identity Podcast. You're welcome to email suggestions for future episodes to theidentitypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like a transcript of this episode, one will be available at theidentitypodcast.wordpress.com. Please take a moment to leave a five-star review on iTunes, and if you haven't already, please make sure to mash that subscribe button to be sure you're in the know when a new episode drops. Sincerest thanks to all that have promoted the Identity Podcast to their family, friends, and coworkers. Every little bit helps.